Birds are interesting symbols, aren't they? Last week as she was talking in her sermon about guide words for the new year, Amy offered the image of a particular female northern cardinal photographed by bird photographer Jocelyn Anderson. Amy described the bird this way, in all her tawny golden glory she is a jewel on her gatepost of a tree branch. She has a bright orange beak, and her crest is brought up into a stylish ridge. She is ready. Then Amy quoted the photographer herself. Impressive floof on this female northern cardinal. She is wearing snowflakes on her right cheek for a festive winter look. Amy focused on the delightfully descriptive word, impressive floof, a symbol for Amy of what she feels called toward in this new year. A little more than a week ago, I was visiting my brother and his family at their house on the Chesapeake. Their house isn't along the main part of the Chesapeake Bay, rather it's along a somewhat protected inlet in the northern part of the eastern bay. I have been there before, but my family has not, so when we got there, I walked my son around the property. As we came close to the water's edge, a blue heron suddenly took off out over the bay. The thick and carefully manicured lawn stretches nearly up to the water's edge. It seems so tame, almost suburban. But suddenly there is this wild resident of the neighborhood popping out from who knows where. It was a startling moment, but delightful too. In fact, speaking of wild residents of the neighborhood, the last time I was there, it was a bald eagle that entertained us by dropping a fish with another fish in the first fish's mouth right there in the middle of the lawn. What does that symbolize? I have no idea, but it's got to mean something, right? I remember years ago, coming up on 20 years ago now, when I was getting ready to leave my previous congregation in Northern Virginia, it was a warm summer day, and after the service on my last Sunday there, we were outside in the parking lot, still full of goodbyes and well wishes, and as we looked up, there was a turkey vulture perched on the church steeple. We didn't know whether to be amused or horrified. A turkey vulture on the steeple. Does this mean something? Was it somehow symbolic? If you look up the question, what does it mean when a turkey vulture is on your house? This is the answer that Google offers. Buzzards, also known as vultures, scavenge for food and help speed up the decomposition process after an animal has died. Because the presence of these birds typically symbolizes the presence of something dead nearby. Some cultures believe having vultures on your roof means death will soon visit your home. Yikes. In the scripture for today, there are no northern cardinals or blue herons or bald eagles or turkey vultures, but there is a bird right there in the middle of the text, a dove, or at least it is something that looks like a dove. 
And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened on to, opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. Descending like a dove. Perhaps we can imagine what that might look like, but what does it mean? And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, And he saw God's spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. What is clear from this story is that the spirit of God shows God's self to Jesus in a visible, identifiable shape and form with the appearance of a dove. Why? It has to be because one cannot see a spirit, so there has to be some form or shape in order for Jesus to know what is coming, what is dropping down onto him. In short, he needs to see the spirit coming before it lands on him. And in this case, it's not the spirit appearing as a tongue of fire or a swirling wind. It is the spirit appearing as a dove. It's an interesting choice, isn't it? the Spirit of God in the shape and form of a dove. Do you remember where the dove shows up elsewhere in Scripture? There are, of course, several references to doves in the Scriptures, including doves sold for sacrifice at the temple. But the association I most immediately make is with the story of Noah. You remember the dove that Noah sends out from the ark, right? Let's visit that story for just a moment through these verses from Genesis chapter 8. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set its foot and it returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days. And sent out the dove, and it did not return anymore. What I find interesting about that is that the raven Noah sends out flies to and fro until the waters dry up. In other words, it flies around, but it does not return to Noah's hand. The dove, however, keeps coming back to Noah until such time as there is a new place where it can make its home. You see the role of the dove, right? The dove is a messenger. It leaves and comes back the first time, and the message is that the earth is still covered with water. It leaves and comes back with the olive leaf, which is the message that life is returning. And then it leaves and does not come back, which is the final message that the floodwaters have receded. The biblical dove is a messenger. So, no surprise that when Jesus sees the Spirit descending from heaven, it's in the shape of a dove. The dove is the messenger. And this message it has for the newly baptized Jesus is this. 
God's blessing is upon you. God's approval is given to you. God's grace is surrounding you. God's love is claiming you. The dove alights on him and the voice speaks of him. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. I'm not going to assume that you particularly miss hearing in sermons from time to time about our ducks at the Borgman house now that they are gone. But whether you miss hearing about them or not, the truth is I do miss having them around. They were messy and demanding and requiring of constant attention, but they were also beautiful in their own way. And the image I most like to keep in my mind, in my memory, isn't the image of them waddling around or even swimming in the tub of water. It is the image of them in flight. I think I will never forget the moment when the two original ducks, the two rowans that we raised from ducklings, discovered that they could fly. They were nosy, curious creatures, those youngsters, and one day while they were in their pen of chicken wire fencing at the side of the yard, we were making a fire in the center of the yard in our fire ring, and suddenly we heard a commotion and looked over and they were flying across the yard toward us. Only 20 yards or so that they flew, only about four or five feet off the ground, but flying toward us and landing at our feet. I'll tell you something, there is something unique about a bird flying to you. Not away from you, but to you. And then landing right there at your feet. I can only imagine what it must feel like for a falconer when a bird of prey comes and lands on their fist. It's just to say that when the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, flies to him, there's something more going on than just an interesting event. There is a special kind of confirmation in play. Keep trying to dig into that in my thoughts. What does it really mean emotionally, symbolically, personally, in terms of purpose and call for the dove spirit to land, to alight on Jesus? The dove, the spirit, flies to him and lands on him. What is really going on? I read one of Richard Rohr's meditations this week. It was one titled, God's Dynamic Intimacy. It caught my eye, my imagination, and as I thought to myself, what if that is what is going on? The dove alighting is an expression of dynamic intimacy. Rohr talks about the intimacy that the Hebrew prophets felt in terms of their relationship to God and how this intimacy was life-changing and life-directing. And then he quotes pastor, theologian, and mystic Howard Thurman, noting that Thurman challenges us to respond to this dynamic intimacy. Here's the Thurman quote. How do you interpret the events of your life? How do you measure them? 
Do you live your life on the basis that all there is to you and what you do is wrapped up in the movement, the isolated, circumscribed movement, pulse beat of your little life? There is another point of view, and this is the point of view of the prophet, and that is that human life, as well as the lives of nations, takes place within a context that is dynamic, That always when I am in the presence of any event, I am caught in an encounter with a series of potentials that spread out in the widest possible directions with the most amazing variety of variation. So that if I am alert in the presence of the event, I seek to deal with the event in terms of not merely what it says, what it looks like, but in terms of what seems to me to be the dynamics of the event, the potentials of the event. Do you deal with events of your life in that way? Thurman asks. Do you believe that life is really dynamic? That it isn't quite finished yet? That, you on, that not only are you involved always in a circling series of potentials, but that you are potential? You, potential. And no time band, no time interval is able quite to contain you and the dynamics of your life and your situation. Do you believe that, he asks. I really like that. I really resonate with these questions. Do you believe that life is really dynamic? that it isn't quite finished yet, that not only are you involved always in a circling series of potentials, but that you are potential. To unpack that in terms of the scripture for today, the dove lands on Jesus, and we might say on us, not just as a singular event, a moment in time, but as a symbol of dynamic intimacy. That is, It is an indication that God is invested. Invested in Jesus' worthiness and in our worthiness. In Jesus' belovedness and in our belovedness. In Jesus' dynamic potential and therefore in our dynamic potential. That is, the dove descending is the symbol of dynamic intimacy. Closeness, yes. Approval, yes. But also life energy, calling energy, vocational energy, relational energy, flying down and landing on. So Jesus' baptism then is both affirmation and expectation. It is confirming and it is empowering. It is this moment and it is every potential yet to come. The spirit dove alights on him, and all of that love and life energy potential is confirmed and spun forward. Not a northern cardinal, as beautiful as it is. Not a blue heron, as surprisingly delightful as it is. Not a bald eagle or a turkey vulture or a raven or a duck, but a dove descending from the heavens and alighting on the shoulder 
or perhaps the head of one human and all human kind. And a voice speaks forth with words like these. These are my children. You are my children. My beloved ones. The ones with whom I have a dynamic and intimate relationship. These blessed ones. The ones of this moment and at the same time the ones of every potential. There's power in that. There's hope in that. There's blessing and possibility in that. In this new year, in this season of epiphany, this season of revelation and discovery, may all this hope and possibility be affirmed in you, in your life. May the dove descend, fly to you, and gently alight on your shoulder or your head, reminding you that the dynamic God of the universe intimately engages with humankind, with us, in all our potential and in all our blessedness. May it be so. Amen.